You're listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history series is produced by the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series features 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is episode 13. Tracy Andrus is the middle daughter of former Idaho governor and Secretary of the Interior Cecil Andrus. Tracy has a wealth of amazing stories about growing up in the Andrus household and traveling to Washington, D.C. for her father's term as the Interior Secretary. She has become an advocate for public lands in her own right, in her role as the president of the Andrus Center for Public Policy at Boise State University, and her insight into the processes behind the establishment of the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area is invaluable. I'm Tracy Andrus, and I think part of the reason that I'm here today is because I'm the middle daughter of uh, former Idaho governor and former secretary of the interior, Cecil DeAndrus. And so I'm here to help uh, talk about the legacy with the birds of prey, which was a very, very special area to him. I mean, I'm just curious, like, what it was like like growing up with Cecil Andrus as, as your father. I mean, are there any, like, childhood stories that stand out that speak to his character oh there are so many stories and i could i could take up the uh the the whole space of time with with different stories i would say an an overall answer to what was it like is that my sisters and i didn't know anything any different and 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 a good example is a is something that happened with my daughter in that a friend of mine was driving along and our girls were three or four years old at the time. And she called me up and she said, Emily and I were driving along and I pointed to a, a billboard that had uh, your father's uh, picture on it. Must have been when he was running for election at, at one of the elections. And, and she said, I told Emily that that was Morgan's grandpa. And she said, she just couldn't understand why Morgan's grandpa would be on a, on a billboard. And I said, Debbie, Morgan thinks that everybody's grandpa's on a billboard. <laughs> it's all we knew. And so, you know, it just was what it was. We were a very close family and and um, really valued our together time because there are a lot of times when dad was pulled in, in different directions. So family time was, was key and, uh, and we got a lot of that. And uh, so we're, we've always been close. We're all right here in the valley and, uh, and we continue to be close. I mean, are there any like life lessons that oh. you know you could point to? Yeah, uh, I can. I can point yeah. to. I can point to two. Yeah. Uh, when you're talking about character, uh, and and I hate to admit that I was on the learning end both times. Uh, and the first one was when I was a sophomore freshman at Idaho State, and I was. Uh, I had been home for the weekend, and we were all talking about the plan to build a coal-fired plant out on the desert close to Mountain Home. And Dad knew it was the wrong thing to do for the people of Idaho, that it was um, just a uh, an environmental footprint we didn't want. He also knew that there was a lot of pressure on him to agree to it. 
and I was driving, and there was no definitive response that weekend. So I'm driving back to school, and I hear on the news that Dad has nixed the the coal-fired plant. And I was very, very proud of him because I knew it wasn't an easy decision. It He knew it was the right decision, but there are always political forces at play, and, and you never really know what the, uh, you know, most elected office holders want to be around to do their brand of good the next day, and sometimes you have to be willing to make a decision that says, I'm not sure if I'm going to be around after the next election cycle, but I need to do what I think is right now. And, um, and Dad did that on multiple occasions, and unfortunately, it's a, um, a character trait that is missing um, all too many times now. The, the, the other one, which is, is, is even bigger, and this is where I really had a, a learning, was that um, the abortion bill uh, back in 1990, and Dad was up for election, and it had been passed by both houses. They sent the, the bill to him. It was the most restrictive abortion bill in the nation. And so it had nationwide and international attention on it. And my mother and I had been on a buying trip. I had a women's clothing store at the time. We'd been on a buying trip. We were down in Dallas. We were talking to Dad over the phone and talking, again, about the— uh, my father always considered himself um, a, a uh, believer in the right to life, uh, but— he also felt that this bill was tragically flawed in that it didn't make any um, accounting for the um, incest and rape. And he felt that that was um, unfair and wrong to put a woman through that. But we were talking about it, and Mom and I said, you know, that bill is likely unconstitutional. It's not going to stand up. You could just sign it so that you didn't have to deal with the political repercussions and let the courts throw it out. And I'm really embarrassed that I, I'll, I'll just say I was young and stupid, um, that I would have said something like that. And dad, again, was, was really struggling with, with what to do. And we came, we came back to the state. I was in my store listening um, live as he said that he had just vetoed the, um, the legislation and why he had. And I was so proud of him because at the time that he did that, we truly as a family felt that he probably would, um, would lose the election, uh, that that was a, um, you know, just something in this state that he would not get beyond. And, and he did what he thought was right. And I, he always used to say, if you have to explain it, don't do it. You know, if it looks, if it looks wrong, don't do it. And, uh, and I like to think that, uh, that I've learned that lesson, but I, it took a couple times. I'm curious to hear, you know, I mean, I, I know that you have a passion for the outdoors. Um, I mean, maybe you can talk about like where this came from and what it was like growing up uh, and, you know, where sort of like the seed of that passion came from? You know, at the um, at the funeral service, the public funeral service that we had, um, I spoke and, and I said, you know, what what does an avid outdoorsman do when he has three daughters? 
And the answer is, he taught us to fish. You know, I grew up camping and fishing. I could, dad would put the worms on our hooks till we were about six. At six, it was like, okay, you know how to do this now. You can put your own worms on. And I'll tell you what, by 10, I could gut a fish with the best of them. I knew how to do it. Um, and we had great times fishing. And um, I was, up until I was 10, I lived um, in the Orfino area. And, and then we moved to Lewiston. So I had about 14 years up in northern Idaho on those streams and, and everything. And some great memories, just some wonderful memories. We had a great big old tent. Um, I think it was Army Surplus that was big enough for all of our sleeping bags in the one tent. And you'd hang the lantern up there. And um, there was nothing like fried fish for breakfast. I mean, yes. Yeah, it was really you got you got to be out in the in the wilds and to, to get a feel for that but it's it's great and uh, I have a lot of uh, a lot of really fond memories and 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 then when when he was elected in uh, the first time in 1970 our ability to go and do some of that um, was was more restricted just taking the time off so we built a cabin up on Lake Cascade uh, just south of Donnelly, and we still have it in the family, uh, 40, I don't know, five plus years later, and and it was a cabin. You know, it wasn't anything special, but it was right there on the lake, and and we would drive up there on Friday nights and spend our weekends there. That's where all that, that family time ha- happened, and then we'd come down Sunday night, and we were out there playing in the water and, um, and just, yeah, I... To this day, there's nothing like looking out across the water at the mountains on the other side, and it it's a calming, um, wonderful feeling of of being able to enjoy nature. I, I guess I'm wondering, like, what your earliest memory is in connection with the Snake River Canyon area. I mean, do you remember visiting that area when you were younger? Do you remember your dad sort of? talking about the significance of it, you know? I, yeah, I remember the, the discussions around the birds of prey. And frankly, I remember Morley Nelson. I mean, he's one of those people, you meet him, you don't forget him. And so my earliest memories would be wrapped up with, with Morley and what he was trying to accomplish. And, uh, and Dad, if you look at some of his papers, uh, he always said, first off, he wanted to protect the birds. Uh, but then the the next step was he said, okay, you've protected the bedroom. Now you have to protect the pantry. And and his belief that once you got outside those cliffs and up on those flat areas where all the food was, you had to protect that because protecting the birds without, without the pantry um, wasn't going to get you where you needed to be. And, and so I remember a lot. I have been to the area on multiple occasions, and um, uh, Matt Morley, um, some of our favorite pictures of, uh, of Dad are with, with one of Morley's uh, eagles uh, on, his, on his arm. Um, and, and I met uh, Morley's uh, two sons and a daughter. I remember them um, from we all, we all Snow Skeet. So I remember conversations about that, too. Nice. That's wonderful. And that, that was actually my next question of like, if you have a memory of, of meeting Morley Nelson, I mean, it sounds like your family and his family 
hung out. Yeah. 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 Well, the um, shared interest occasions brought us together. And, uh, and in fact, one of his sons was, was at the uh, park dedication. Um, I got a chance to say hi after many, many years. Uh, just when would, that would have been last May. So, yeah, a lot of shared interests uh, and a lot of shared respect for the patriarchs in our families. What was your first impression? I mean, do you have, like, is, is there anything that stands out, like, after first, first meeting Morley? Yeah. Well, I knew what he was doing and his work with these incredible, beautiful birds. And so there was that element of, wow, uh, you know, this is a man with a vision and, uh, and a, pas- a passion for, for these creatures. And, and so it was kind of one of those, somebody a little larger than life that was accomplishing something that I greatly admired. Uh, and and he was, uh, Morley was a lot like Dad in that he was a soft-spoken man. He wasn't the one that was out there um, touting all the the wonderful things that he was doing. Uh, he left that to other people. He was his passion was the birds, and and protecting them. And he let his work speak for itself. So, your father was able to influence uh, the protection of, of this area from several different perspectives, right? I mean, he was the governor of Idaho in, in the early 70s right. when the first level of, of protection right. was put on the area. Um, and then he was the, the Secretary of the Interior um, in the Carter administration, like at, at a really like a crucial moment um, to, to take the next step toward protecting that area. Right. And any memories that stand out, like from sort of crucial moments, you know, like in, in the early 70s when he first became governor, I mean, do you, like, do you have any memories of any of these key events or of, like, the importance of this, this area popping up? You have, to, you have to remember, while I, I, I continue to be amazed at the uh, march of time and where I am now. But when dad was first elected, I was 14 years old. I was worried about going to school the next day. (laughs) So a lot of these things just were not top of mind uh, back then. I, I, I was focused elsewhere. I would say my memories have more to do with the discussions that you have as an adult with uh, with your parent over things that are important to them, and and so we had lots of discussions um, about the birds and the area. I I don't know for sure. I remember when I was back in D.C. So I was in my early twenties when Dad was back at Interior, and and the fact that they had um, the peregrine falcons, they had nesting areas on the, you know, here you are in the middle of this huge city, and they had nesting areas on the buildings there. I'm going to assume Dad had a hand in that, um, but but I can't, I can't tell you what that was. I remember because you had cameras and 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 the birds around there, and it was uh, even then, you know, that and that was back in the late 70s, that it was a really important thing to, to him. And to show that um, that the birds could live, you know, if you gave them a, if you gave them a home, they could live in, in a lot of different areas. Mm-hmm. And of course, if, 
if you ever spend enough time, I, I'm not sure how the conservationists would feel about my saying this, but if you ever spend um, any time in Washington, D.C., at least back then, it was ruled by the pigeons. And I, I thought that was a great food source. <laughs> I can deal with more falcons and fewer pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a remarkable, and that's totally a tangent from this conversation, but like it is, it's a really remarkable thing yeah. that, you know, this, that's one of the, you know, it was sort of like a unforeseen component of the remarkable success of the, the return of the peregrine falcon was yeah. that there's this incredible food source in cities, mm-hmm. pigeons, right, yeah. and introduced species, but great food source for peregrine falcons and then there's you know nesting habitat everywhere in these artificial oh yeah buildings it's, absolutely it's, um i wonder um you know you're talking about uh the time you spent in dc um i'm sure that was a, a, a huge like family decision that had to be made like when your father was called to be the secretary of the interior i mean was was that a surprise it was a big family decision but and and it's really funny um when we were at the democratic national convention was in new york uh in 1976 and we had friends in um that were the governor um of minnesota and his wife um wendy and mary anderson were friends and so the the men are off doing what they needed to be doing and the families we were on a boat touring around the um the island and talking about well if jimmy carter gets the nomination and if he selects walter mondale as his vice president and and if mondale then and then if they're elected and carter were to pick Cease, dad, as his um, secretary of interior, and and then if Wendy um, self-appointed, which dad tried to talk him out of, but he did anyway, um, and if Wendy self-appoints, we'd all end up back in Washington, D.C., and then we all laughed about it. We thought, oh, yeah, those dominoes are never going to fall in that direction, and that's exactly what happened. Um, so we, uh, but both... Um, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease when I was 19 in 1975. And I, um, I mean, there are lots of stories uh, around that, but it was a very traumatic time. I um, underwent radiation therapy at Stanford Medical Center and came back. um, And in 1976, I think in like August or something, they thought that that the disease had come back. And, you know, you, you, you work so hard the first time to get through it, and then they tell you, it looks like we've had a reoccurrence. And, and you think, oh, that's it. I gave it my best shot. And so Dad and I flew back down to Stanford and discovered that it was not a reoccurrence. It was just something that they didn't see very often here in Boise at that time. And, and I was okay. So we'd had that scare. But then right about that same time, my, um, my sister who was um, five years older than I was, was diagnosed with lupus. And, and after I got through my scare and came home, Tana's lupus um, went out of control, and we had to um, send her down to Stanford 
uh, and where they saved your life. I mean, it was it was really scary at a time. So finally, in that fall, as all the rest of the presidential politics is going on, um, in fact, it was it was early December when we finally got Tana home, and and Tana and I talked about it because we knew um, that it was possible that the then president-elect would come talk to dad. They had been freshman governors together. They had um, really liked each other and viewed environmental policy similarly. And and so we knew that was a possibility. We also knew that with the health issues, the very significant health issues that we had just gone through, that dad would not leave two of his three girls on the West Coast um, to go back to, to Washington, D.C. And and we said, you know, if he gets the call, we need to make this an easy decision. And therefore, we committed that we would go back as a family. And and that's my younger sister was, was still in high school, so she obviously would go with a family. Tan and I said, we're in. If, uh, you know, if you get the nod, we'll go back. So yeah, it was a it was a big family discussion, but mostly it was Tan and I saying seeing this. Dad never asked us to do that, right. but it was seeing that that would end up being a roadblock for him, and we said that that's just not fair. Well, that's re- that's a really fascinating story. I mean, it's it's really interesting to hear about you know all those dynamics in the yeah. background that you never know when you look at somebody. You know, yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, and it is, it's a really important family decision and that, and, and it's like that family decision alters the course of history. Yeah. Right. Yeah. What was the move like? I mean, what was it like to move from this amazing place to Washington DC? Right. I mean, was that like, I, I, there must've been a culture shock. Well, there. there were culture shocks. First, first off, I have to tell you about the move because uh, it's just, so dad had to go back early anyway. And we um, were going to go back. We had things that we needed to wrap up here. And then we were going to go back and I had a car. Um, mom had a car. My little sister had a car that we didn't think could make the trip. So we were going to attach it to the back of um, the pickup truck to be um, driven by one of dad's key guys that was going to go back with us. So you had mom, three girls, and Wayne Mitleider going with us. And and that was before cell phones or, or anything else. And so we had this deal that we're all going to drive its line of sight. You got three thousand miles to drive. We're all going to drive line of sight. If anything happens, that we get separated, you stay on the interstate. You go through the the um, urban area, and you stop at the first rest stop on the other side. Sounded good. So, day one, the the bumper hitch that they had on my little sister's car pulled the bumper off, <laughs> and. And so we, Marvin Mazda, so we had to drive Marvin Mazda. So now we're in four vehicles because you can't do the bumper anymore. And the first night we stopped somewhere in Wyoming and the next morning um, there, somebody had been shooting off a gun in the parking lot. It didn't hurt any of our cars, but there had been a couple cars that had been hit by, by bullets. Uh, and then we went, we stayed one night in Kansas City. I don't remember on which side of the river it was, but um, when we checked in, somebody said, um, be careful, uh, there's been some problem with um, 
vandals putting sugar in tanks, in, in uh, fuel tanks. And so, and this was before, they didn't have locking fuel tanks or anything. So poor Wayne is up most of the night watching over our cars. So we have that. And then, and then we get to um, Charleston, West Virginia, and we're on an interstate, but they're doing um, they're doing work on it. So there are a lot. There's no, really no side area, and Marvin Mazda finally gives up the ghost and stops running. And so we all pull over, and the cars are going around us and trying to figure out what we're going to do with with Marvin Mazda. And um, finally, a police officer stops, and we're thinking, "Oh, thank God! You know, we help." All he said was. Move that car. As soon you two with the drivable cars get going. Wayne had stopped with with Kelly's car, and he said, "Fix that thing as soon as you can. Get out of here." And he took off. We're going. Well, that wasn't a lot of help. So, Mom, Tan, and I drive on through like we're supposed to 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 go to the uh, to the far end. Well, the interstate ended. There was no rest stop, and, and we got up into this area. It was five o'clock on a Friday, and the. There was a factory over on the hill, I remember, and there's this guy standing outside of what would be kind of like a 7-Eleven. And he had a shotgun, and he's just standing there watching the cars go by. And we're more than a little intimidated. But it was, by this time, we know that our idea of driving out, you know, to the rest stop isn't going to happen. And there was a little restaurant next to it. And so we pulled in, kind of keeping an eye on the guy with the shotgun, and went in and found a payphone in, in the restaurant to call the police um, so that we could get some help because by this time we had no idea where Wayne and Kelly are. And and I called the number and I got a recording. <laughs> and it was like, now what do I do? So we decided, okay, we're going to drive back in town the way we came and go to the same point we lost them. And we got close to that area. There was a red light. We pulled up. And lo and behold, we realized that we have pulled in behind Kelly and Wayne. It was like, oh, thank you, dear Lord. I was just, I had no, so there we are. We all, we make it to a restaurant, or to a, a hotel, and then we, we have, um, we have uh, dinner, and uh, those of us that were, I had turned 21 on the trip, I had I had a drink that night, <laughs> as did the others. And we found out that Wayne had fixed Marvin Mazda. The clutch pin fell out, of, or the pin fell out of the clutch. I don't know much about cars. He'd fixed it with the wire from Kelly's earring. So, so the next day, we got one more day to go into Washington, D.C., and the, it starts raining, and Marvin's windshield wipers aren't working. <laughs> I told you the car wasn't supposed to go that way. It was supposed to be. So Tana and Kelly had been in, in her car and and they couldn't get their arm out the side to make you know, to manually do the, the thing. So we ended up with I ended up in Wayne's um, truck because I was the only one who knew how to drive um, with mirrors. And Wayne was in Marvin Mazda because he had a big, long arm and he could manually work the windshield wipers. And um, and Mom, so he was in there. And then my car, Tan and Kelly were in my car and Mom was in hers. So anyway, so we're, we're, we're 
know, this ragtag bag, we're going, yeah, our father's secretary of interior. <laughs> we, <laughs> we look so, so we're, we're driving in, and by the time we get to, because of the weather and everything else, by the time we get to Washington, D.C., well, to the Beltway, it's dark. And, and we enter from whatever highway we were on, we enter the Beltway from the left side. Most of the time you enter from the right, but this thing brought you in on the left side. And I was in the in the back. And um, the uh, when we got on, Wayne, who was in the lead, because he knew where we were going, none of the rest of us, I, I knew we lived on Balls Hill Road. I didn't know anything other than that. I think I probably had the street address. Um, saw the exit he wanted. And he goes shooting across five, six lanes, whatever the beltway is, to that exit. And mom follows, and Tanning and Kelly follow in my car. And I can see in these big mirrors that I've got that there's a semi coming. And I couldn't tell how far back it was. And, and there was no way I was going to try, I was going to risk it. So I saw my whole family exit off. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I'll just work my way over. I got off at the next thing. Problem was that the truck was almost out of gas. And my purse was in my car. I had no money. So I stop at I stop at this one gas station and I ask for directions to Balls Balls Hill Road and they give me some directions and I'm trying to follow them and not fall apart. Don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, and and I get go ways and then I had to stop at another one. So here I'm stopping at these gas stations, but I can't get any gas and I just figure well at some point I'm going to run out, but hopefully finally I get on Balls Hill Road and it's raining. And, and it's like, okay, all right, I'm on Balls Hill Road, but I couldn't see any of the house numbers, and I had no idea what our house looked like. And, and so I finally pulled over because I was going to walk up to the house and just look at the number. I, I didn't know what else to do. And so I pull over, and this big black car comes up and comes around me and stops. And the door opens, and my father gets out. And that's one of those things... I mean, I had been trying to keep it. I'm 21 years old. I'd been trying to keep it together all, all of this way. And I saw him, and it was, Daddy! You know, I just, he, everybody else had made it to the house, and he was out looking for me, and I was trying to find my way to him. And, uh, and so it's very memorable. So when you ask me about our trip back there. And, and, I had no idea that was oh, such a... It was, so... We all remember the trip back there. I bet, I bet. But um, well, I'm I'm just curious, you know, like what the what that transition was like, oh. and you know, and 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 I mean, I, you were already in your twenties. I mean, what what were you doing uh, uh, during that time period? Well, I had, so I went to my freshman year in school at Idaho State University. Then I missed the first semester of fall because of the Hodgkin's disease. So then I went back, which would have been my um the first semester of my sophomore year but it was the spring semester and and i was just kind of confused a lot of had gone on so i came back and instead of going back to idaho state i stayed here then the next semester and went to boise state trying to figure out what i was going to do and um and that's when we ended up going back to washington dc and so then i get back there so i'm leaving school again and so I just got, I just thought, you know, I get back, I'll get a job. And then I was accepted at Georgetown, so I was going to start in the, in the fall. And um, I got a job with 
Wendy Anderson, um, the former governor from the state of Minnesota who became the U.S. senator when Mondale went to, to vice president. So I worked in his office as a legislative assistant on a, on a couple of committees, banking, housing, and urban affairs, commerce. Those were my two big ones. Um, that's back when the Internet was just getting started. Cable TV, they weren't sure what that was, so they were all trying to figure out how to – this dates myself. Um, the airbag legislation um, – Lots of things, but so I, I worked and uh, worked on Capitol Hill and loved it, absolutely loved it. Um, and then I went to school in the fall. I didn't want to give up my job on Capitol Hill, so I was working 24 hours a week on Capitol Hill, taking 18 credits at Georgetown and commuting from Northern Virginia, which was a little bit much even for me. I was a, uh, an accounting major at the time, and Georgetown was a great school, but not really into business. And it's such a regimented program that, um, and I, for me, it was all messed up because of the semesters that I had missed and, and that. And I was taking normally fall classes in the spring and vice versa. And when I got to spring and I was going to have to take an entire load of elective classes because they didn't even have one, one section of three of the classes I needed. So I just said, to heck with that. And I, um, my sister and I, Spent. I continued to work on Capitol Hill, and we spent a lot of time in the Smithsonian, and we came back here that summer, and I finished up my last year at Boise State, and so um, I had a great time back there. And it was kind of it was hard to leave, you know. Once I got back here, it was like, okay, this is home. Um, Idaho is home. This is where I belong. But I I thoroughly enjoyed my experience working within the government, seeing legislation, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, uh, of how it's passed, and um, it was a it was a great experience. I'll always I'll always be thankful for it. I'll also always be thankful that I came back to Idaho. It must have been a really remarkable experience, you know, to grow up surrounded by by politics and in this political family. Um, to have the opportunity to, to yeah. participate. Washington in- D.C. is an incredible city. You know, it's a great place to be a tourist. It's just, it's unlike any other city in the country. Um, it's the seat of government. You can watch it. You can watch it work or not work. Um, but it's still, it's our heritage. And, and it's really a very, very special place. I, I loved it. Um, it, was, it was fun to watch the inner workings. In your work, did you ever cross paths with like the work that your father was doing? Did, was there any ever? I wasn't on any of the committees. I didn't work on any of the committees that, that handled his legislation. I suspect as an adult now that when I look back on it, that was by design. At the time, it was just that wasn't what, um, you know, what I had been assigned to. Uh, and by the time that, that the protection um, was put in place, I was back in Idaho. Okay. So I wasn't, I wasn't in D.C. with him, and my memory would be kind of foggy on it. Um, but I can tell you, Dad had a list of things he wanted to accomplish while he was back there. And um, he was pretty good at figuring out how to get done the things that you're not supposed to be able to get done. <laughs> you know, he, he, he usually could find a way around a roadblock. And, and he did that with the Alaska Lands Bill, and he did that with the, um, with the Birds of Prey um, area. And um, 
was something he wanted to get done, and he was going to get it done. Maybe you could talk about what it was like in 1980 during that election, you know, like the realization that this isn't going to continue for another four years. Oh, well, that really didn't have anything to do with us because Dad had already told the president that if he was reelected, he wasn't staying for another oh, four years. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. He okay. had he had been back there. He had done what he wanted to get done, mm-hmm. and he had decided that Washington, D.C. was not where he wanted to be. So he was always going to come home uh, at the end of the first term. Gotcha. I didn't realize that. That's yeah. interesting. Um, so, I mean, it, it, getting to this, you know, sort of crucial moment and, and you know, and it sounds like you were not in Washington, D.C. At, at the time. Right. But I mean, there's this very short window of time when your father still holds this position as secretary of the interior, but he knows the administration is going to change and probably someone's going to come in that does not want to see this area protected that he cares so much about. Um, I mean, I I wonder if if that's something that you ever discussed with him after the fact. Well, and here's where I wish that I had more memory banks than I do about that specific issue. Uh, we talked a lot about Alaska lands, and and I am more um, aware of the of the elements that played into that piece happening, um, the use of the Antiquities Act. So maybe if you can help jog some memory cells here on exactly how that played out, then I can. Uh, you give me the play by play, and yeah, I'll, yeah, and sure. I'll try to give you some color. Sure, I, I can because I just, you know, uh, luckily, just last week I had the opportunity to sit down with Dean Bibles, um, who was the district manager of the BLM in the Boise office mm-hmm. at that time. Um, and, you know, Dean told us this story about how, you know, very soon after the election in 1980, he got a phone call. Um, from your father, essentially saying, prepare a withdrawal for that Birds of Prey area, um, because we need to get this, you know, protected, and this is the only route left that we can do within this very short window, and said, you know, get me withdrawal for the maximum amount of time that is possible, which was 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And then Dean had this story about, like, you know, preparing this this document for your father and going to um, D.C., and, you know, handing it off and your father just, you know, signing it right there in that moment without it, you know, and, and, and Dean, you know, the way he told the story is sort of like, are you sure you just want to sign this as is? Like, you don't want anybody else to proofread this or, you know, or anything. Like um, and, you know. And what, what was the, the legal mechanism that he used? Because that's what I don't remember. It was referred to as an administrative withdrawal. Okay. And okay. it that gave them 20 years. Interior. Yep. Yeah. And it gave them 20 years, you know, of time to find a way to, to right. protect it. Yeah. yeah. And and that's, and, you know, I, that's those roadblocks I said he usually could, could find a way around. Mm-hmm. There are so many things that getting over the hurdle, getting something done, is is really a big push. But once it's done and people get used to it, who is going to turn around 20 years later and say, oh, no, that area shouldn't be protected. We're going to open that up. And Dad knew that. Mm-hmm. You know, he was, he was very pragmatic. Mm-hmm. 
and and it's get past the screaming and the and, and everybody being worried about what they don't know and get to the point where you can look back after 20 years and say this is a good thing you know nobody nobody wants to then turn around and be part of dismantling it one of the first things you said as far as like how your father like like lessons Mm-hmm. that you learned, right? Like when you were talking about those stories, I was, the first thing that popped into my head is that story I just shared yeah. with you that Dean yeah. Bible shared with us, right? As like another perfect example of, of this that. Is, this is right. It needs to be done. Let's mm-hmm. do it while we can. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, it was shown um, the protection of the uh, of the Boulder White Clouds is is a perfect example of, of that in that it's something that needed to be done and politics just kept getting in the way and and you don't want to have to take 20 years to get it done now that it's done there everybody knows that it should have been done well not everybody but most people and nobody's going to attempt to dismantle it right you know because it was the right thing to do and and so I, I I know that that's the way he he looked at the birds of prey. So there was this administrative withdrawal, you know, it was protected but not permanently. Right. There was this twenty year period, you know, to to protect it, um, and um, it wasn't until nineteen ninety three um, when Larry LaRocco. Um, introduced this bill that it was finally passed, um, but of course. By that time, a lot, a lot of you know, a lot of things had changed. Um, a lot had happened. Your father was um, was governor again by that point. He was, but you know what's interesting about that timing? 1993 is coming up on the end of his fourth and final term, mm-hmm. and that's back into reading. It's this kind of a replay of what he could see when he was in Washington. Mm-hmm. He needed to do what he could do while he was there. Well, in 1993, it's like, if I'm ever going to get this through, and Larry was in Congress, and, um, and a friend, and uh, a colleague, and somebody that he could depend on, and so I, uh, I think it, it was the perfect alignment, and who knew what was going to happen after Dad left office in January of 1995, so he was, I, I, I can see that it was time to get it done. I wonder, so 1993 was also the year that you ran for Boise mayor, is that correct? Oh, yes, that would be correct. (laughs) Good memory. Good memory. I did my research. Um, So, (laughs) I mean, I I guess, so, you know, by this point, you had, I mean, obviously you got your start, your involvement in politics when you were in in D.C., Right. but by this point you had, you know, jumped full board into this. I mean, I, I, I guess I wonder, like, it's, you know, you were running for mayor of Boise. This bill was being introduced by Larry LaRocco in Congress. Your father is the governor. Um, I mean, clearly you were involved in politics at that point in time. I mean, where where were you when all this was happening? Well, um, talking about jumping in with both feet, um, that's not really the way that happened. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, never, I never aspired to elected office. Uh, but uh, I got very involved. I had a I had a clothing store downtown. I got very involved with the Downtown Boise Association, and I am a an opinionated person. 
Um, my friends will tell you that with a smile, and people who disagree with me might not be smiling when they say that, but they're all going to agree. I have my thoughts. And I um, continued to think that there were things that were going on in the city of Boise, because the Downtown Boise Association was so involved with it, that could be done better. And people who have ideas and step up and voice them, then the people that agree with them start to say, yeah, we should do something about that, and you should do that. And and so I, I remember having a conversation with my father before I um, before I threw my hat in the ring, and I said, "There, you know, there's there's this train, and it's going down the track, and I'm strapped on it, and I don't know how to get off of it." <laughs> I was seeking fatherly advice, and and I, you know, once I got into it, I I was very passionate about the race. I was passionate about some of the uh, of the things that that my group wanted to accomplish and and so I was all in um, but it wasn't as though I saw this great elected office vision of history for, you know future for me and and so when I didn't win um, I was there's the, always the disappointment of not of not winning uh, when you put your heart and soul into something but I was fine with um, with returning and, and working which is why in fact, uh, I don't remember how many years later it was that um, when there was the special election um, after um, Brent resigned, that uh, the uh, first call I got was from Dan Popke, who was at the Statesman. So are you going to run? And I said, Dan, I live in Eagle. <laughs> and I said, I don't live in Boise anymore. He said, are you going to move back? <laughs> I said, my family would shoot me. So... Um, so anyway, it, but I tell people because I'm really a big believer in um, in women running for office. Um, we need uh, equal representation, and um, and I'm a strong proponent in that. And I would tell them that okay, I ran for office and I lost, and you know what? I am so much better off in my life for having run. There is no downside to stepping up, I mean, you hurt for a couple of days, but there's no downside for stepping up because the experiences you gain, the friendships you make, the um, just the whole experience is a positive one, absolutely a positive one. In fact, I know that that was 25 years ago because the group of women that got together in that race became lifelong friends of mine, and we just had a celebration, our 25th year of being together. And we worked on, you know, they, we got together during my uh, campaign, we worked on other campaigns, we've worked on issues over the years, and it's a bond that will always be there. So, I, I, yeah, it's scary to think about doing that, but I encourage all women who have a passion, step up, be accountable, and be willing to, um, to get in front, because you'll be the better for it, regardless of the outcome. What was the influence on, like, your career and your life in general? I mean, like... I was already on the board for uh, Blue Cross of Idaho, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, I, and I still had my clothing store, but I was really to the point that I did not see my future in retailing. And, and so I wanted to do something else. And, and I think that the, um, the maturity 
that uh, that I was able to exhibit and the strategic thought process that I, that I was able to exhibit during the election had um, the CEO of Blue Cross of Idaho at the time thinking of me a little differently than as, um, as a board member. And so it wasn't that long um, after the election and when I decided to, um, to wrap up the, the retail operation when he said, I want to sit down and talk to you. And, and he um, encouraged me to, to join the management team out there. And I really enjoyed um, corporate America. I, I started out in corporate America. I ended up going back to it at, at Blue Cross of Idaho. And, um, and, and my skill set was really designed well for that. I'm kind of an operational person. I like to see things that aren't working right and um, figure out how to make them work right for whatever the, the purpose is. And uh, the whole reason that I had joined the board of Blue Cross was that, and this was back in 1991, was that health care at that time and, and, and health insurance associated with that it was something that impacted every, every aspect of our lives. Personal decisions, business decisions, um, state funding, uh, federal funding, it was just it permeated everything, and I thought, what better way to learn about it than to be part of it? And uh, and I totally enjoyed my uh, my time in the industry. It sounds like it was a, a pivotal uh, yeah, sort of I don't moment think I, in your career, right? That, I don't that, think yeah. I would have ended up there if it hadn't been for the election and uh, and 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 the relationships that I made um, during that that race uh, were were relationships that paid dividends and meant a great deal to me um, throughout many years to come. So I, I wonder, I mean, clearly 1993 was a busy year for you. Yes, it um, was. <laughs> <laughs> um, you were running for mayor, but it was also the year that, that this bill introduced by Larry LaRocco was passed and the Snake River Birds of Prey natural area finally became the Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. Um, so, I mean, I wonder if amidst everything that was going on in that year, if you have an, any memory of, of the significance of, of that moment, you know, I mean. The, the, the thing, the only thing I, not enough, uh, you know, of the details, uh, the thing that I do remember was how proud we all were, not just me, not just dad, but all of the people that I knew in this area were so proud of creating um, that birds of prey and of being home to the birds of prey because they believed in in what Morley set out to do and and the fact that it was right here in the heart of the Treasure Valley was really important to us. So I, I just remember that that significant sense of pride in in that being accomplished. At this point, it's been 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, that we've had this area established as a national conservation area. Do you feel like there's a, a personal connection there because of the role that, that your family played in, in establishing? First thing that dad would always say is that nobody does anything alone. So I, no, I, I, I would say that the, the heavy lifting for the Birds of Prey was done by Morley and, and his family and his team. Um, we're just very thankful that uh, that my family and my father 
uh, was in the right place to to assist. But um, but it's it's all about Morley, um, and, and Morley would say it's all about the birds. So you know, uh, yeah. uh, there it is. I'm I'm very proud. Well, in fact, the um, the Cecil DeAndres Park that Mayor Beater so graciously renamed in Dad's memory, uh, the kiosks that are around it are focused on Dad's history of conservation throughout the state of Idaho. And one of the areas is the Snake River Birds of Prey. And I remember when um, I saw the first layout, there's this picture of Dad and Robert Redford um, on a float that was going down through the area. And, you know, part of it was you needed to raise awareness uh, of it and get different people so um, on board to make it happen. So that's a little bit of what that was going on. And, and I looked at the team that was putting it together, and I said, I got two problems with this picture. And I said, first off, most of the people don't even know who Robert Redford is. You know, I'm sorry. He's a, he's a really good man, but most people don't remember him. And I said, but secondly, there's no picture here of Morley Nelson. And I said, I can't sign off on something that doesn't have a picture of the man who was responsible for it. And and they said, oh, well, we don't know if we've got a photograph. Well, then they came back, and I don't know if you've seen that uh, that piece over in the park but it's a great photograph of dad and morley and it it was a it was a great friendship it was a good working relationship together with morley doing the lead and dad doing the assist they were able to make it happen and um and larry uh, also doing the assist um and i'm and i'm very thankful that that dad could play that role and i'm very grateful to morley for taking the lead i just um, you know, you just can't say enough about somebody with that kind of vision. And here it is 25 years later, and look what he's done. Uh, look what his center has done in his name. Um, it's pretty special. Absolutely. And sort of following that, that line of thought, um, I mean, what do you think the significance of actually attaching Morley's name to the NCA was? Which, because that happened years after, I mean, I think soon after Morley died, um, there was a whole new bill was passed just to rename that National Conservation Area and include Morley's name. Well, first off, it was the right thing to do. Uh, you know, what is the significance of it? I think that a lot of people in the beginning that believed in the conservation area, believed in the vision that was made of that area by Morley. Mm -hmm. And and they were there because they believed in Morley and his vision. And and so if we're going to get history right, you need to have his name on it. Uh, I think that it, it, it didn't just happen. There was a man with a vision that was willing to commit his whole life to it. And, and so it was the right thing to do. Did your father stay in touch with Morley up until... Um, his death? You know, I I don't know how frequently. Um, I I am always amazed um, at at Dad's eulogy. Uh, Governor Otter uh, at the State House was talking about how his mother, uh, who was a favorite of Dad's, um, there were lots of people that were favorites of Dad. He loved people, and and um, the governor said said that every once in a while he'd talk to his mom and she'd say, 
Well, the governor called me today. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, Dad did that. He's, he did. He was excellent at staying in touch with people. But I wouldn't know about it because he wouldn't come back and say, oh, I called such and such today. Mm-hmm. It was those relationships. <laughs> Dad had a gift of memories, uh, 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 the memory of people's names. And he had that gift. Part of it is just because he truly loved people. And he paid attention when he was introduced to someone. And he listened to their backstory. And he connected those two. And I always, I, I can't tell you. In fact, I said one of these days I'm going to publish a, um, a book called Sea Stories. Because everybody has their sea story. Mm-hmm. And they're usually that they met dad in one place in one year and ran into him in a totally different place five years later. And he knew their first name and, and, and their backstory. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was incredible. So I have no doubt that with the relationship between those two men, that, um, that at some level that relationship continued on um, to the end of Morley's life because Dad thought a great deal of Morley. I, I was telling you about the conversation I had with Dean Bibles. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, Dean clearly in his telling of, you know, the story of, of, you know, the whole withdrawal and this whole process and his interaction with your, your father, it was clear to him that, like, at the time when he was in that moment, right, like, early in his career um, as a district manager of the BLM, like, he was clearly taken aback by exactly what you're talking about, about, like, your father's ability to, um, to, to remember him, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the way he tells that story of like, you know, he, he explained to me is like, you have to understand that this is not normal for the Secretary of the Interior to be communicating directly with a district manager of the BLM. Like that didn't happen. And it's because of that, that this, all this happened, right? <laughs> well, Dad, Dad was never one to stand on ceremony. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just not his... That wasn't his thing. Pomp and circumstance weren't important to him. Mm-hmm. And, and he actually kind of loved it. Uh, lots of those sea stories have to do with people, um, a woman where dad pulled over and he was driving number one. We always used to call it number one. It's the you know, big black state car with mm-hmm. the number one license plate. Mm-hmm. And he pulls over to help some woman change a tire. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, and, uh, and stories about being in a, in a um, lounge back east when the potato commercials come on and dad's up on the potato commercials and he's sitting in there and the uh and the bartender who yeah i mean he's not putting faces together mm-hmm. says you know you'd think they'd pay that guy enough so he didn't have to moonlight <laughs> dad looked at john Howe, who was with him and said don't you say a word <laughs> so your father had a very long illustrious political career started at age 29 yeah and so like what i wonder is you know if you have any insight into like how he viewed this this one achievement of you know playing this role in establishing protection for the birds of prey national conservation area well i would say that he would be proud that he could be of assistance but i don't think that dad would ever have put this as his accomplishment i think he would have seen it as morley's accomplishment and something that he helped with 
So it's, it's just looking at it from the lens that dad would use, and he'd never, he'd never put that up as, this is something I did. He, he would look at it as, this is something I was able to help out with um, and, and make sure that this area that was developed um, through the vision of Morley Nelson could get the protection that it needed and deserved. Lastly, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your role um, with the Anders Center. Um, and, you know, maybe put the, like, the work of the Anders Center um, in the context of, like, the importance of looking, you know, th like the future of public lands, yeah. right? Because we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of, you know, the designation of this NCA, you know, and, and I think it's, it's important to be thinking about, like, well, what do the next 25 years look like? And who are, uh, who are our future leaders Absolutely. in the area of environment and public lands? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what the Andrus Center is all about. So uh, the Andrus Center was created 26 years ago uh, as a way for Dad to continue the work um, that meant so much to him. So we're focused on his legacy issues, and that's uh, environment, public lands, education, and leadership. Those four things. Um, there are lots of other important things, but that's what we focus on. That's what we're all about. We're part of the School of Public Service at Boise State University, and we were, we were set up and established as a separate 501c3, but we have created a really meaningful and important um, permanent now relationship with Boise State, and we're very happy to be part of its School of Public Service. And, and part of what we do on the environment and public lands side, and, and I think uh, one of the most important pieces going forward, and something that um, we're mostly developed, but we still have pieces coming, but that's our work with the um, environmental study students. That's really the future. That's, that's what it's all about. And we're about to um, be able to name our first round of Cecil DeAndre Scholars and we're in the development stage. We hope to name them in 2019, and, and that will be all about helping the, um, your students from the Environmental Studies program take that next step. And, and you know, a lot of scholarships focus on, on helping kids pay um, books and tuition, but we wanted to be about taking the next step, about helping create the experiences that they need and the relationships that are important for them to move from student to professional and to leader of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that's what the scholarships will be focused on. Um, we've got a whole suite of services that we're doing with the environmental study students there. Uh, one is the internships and scholarships. And, and those are together. Um, we're working on those with a number of different uh, both uh, government and NGO employers uh, that we have a new website on the Andrus Center um, site that we're really excited about where a student may know they want to study environmental studies uh, but and maybe have some idea of what they want to do but aren't sure what jobs are out there. Well, you can go out and there are a whole, I don't remember, 20 different avenues that you can go with with your education and it will not only give you an idea of what the jobs are but um, what they do 
and 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 importantly, what the employers in that area are looking for, not just your degree, but in your experience and and in um, your additional areas of study and, and that type of thing, so that our, our students at Boise State can, and, and the website's open to anybody. You can be a student at U of I, you can be an environmental studies student anywhere and use this. But it, it helps them go from having the minimum qualifications to, to get a job into how do you move to the top of the candidate list. Mm -hmm. And and that's really what our focus is on, on this. And, and we also hope to have a, um, in 2020, um, we're, uh, we will start a competition that will allow the students to come in and we'll give them a real world environmental uh, or public lands policy issue. Mm -hmm. Let them work on that pick the, have a panel of um, professionals who would pick the top three responses, let's say, and then allow those students to present their ideas in front of a broad panel and, um, and a, an auditorium of experts. A couple things happen when you create that, um, that interplay is that the students get real world real-world experience. The ones that get to um, present their ideas get even more experience, but they also may, uh, they're, they're getting exposure to potential future employers. But for the rest of us, the important thing is people who have been in the industry for a long time, who sometimes have a hard time thinking out, out of the box, maybe these students are going to come up with the answer to that issue that hasn't been thought of. And so it's a way of creating the dynamic and moving things forward because we all have a life cycle. Mm -hmm. And the whole focus of the Andrus Center within environment and public policy is to make sure that we are filling the pipeline with tomorrow's leaders. We want to be part of that. Yeah. You know, so many times you think you know what it is that you want to do with your degree. Mm -hmm. But what you don't want to do is get to your senior year and and start sending out your resume and finding out, oh, by the way, they wanted you to have this internship opportunity and they wanted you to have this extracurricular activity. They wanted you to um, volunteer here or there. Uh, you should know that in, you know, in your sophomore year when you're first taking a look at it. For sure. And I mean, environmental studies is like it's... Uh, I mean, the program I went through was fantastic, but it's so broad. It's, it's hard to know, and, and I was lucky that I had an advisor that kind of took me under his wing and offered me a summer job that mm -hmm. gave me that experience there that you you're go. talking about. And yep. so when I graduated, I had like, I had my pick of, of jobs, right? Yep. And I had sort of found at least, you know, the, the, the sort of more specific focus that, that, um, that I was interested in at that time, um, which was field biology. And, and so I had my pick of like, field biology jobs when I graduated and it was be but because of that right without that I, I mean I had fellow uh, you know I had friends in that program with that were, were lost well when and, graduated. and that's part of what we're doing with this website because it's not just uh, I mean there will be the um, the scholarship opportunities but even if if, if somebody is not um, does not doesn't receive a scholarship we want to be a posting board a live posting board so that those organizations that have the um, the internships can post those on our site and the students will come together yeah. and and find them there mm -hmm. 
And, and so we're really excited about it. And we, um, not only are the students excited about the website, but the, um, the entities that will potentially hire them are starting to come to us and saying, hey, we hear you've got a website. We want to be a part of it. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to, to chat about, I mean, all kinds of stuff, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, thank, it was, thank it was I great, told you, right? I told you. I, <laughs> I have lots um, of ideas. I, uh, you know, my memory banks aren't as long as I would like them to be, but, uh, but it was fun. That was Tracy Andrus, president of the Andrus Center for Public Policy. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle. <laughs>